to the Real Rural Women's Leadership podcast series. This project is funded through the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. It is led by Care Ballon in St. George, Ballon Shire in southwest Queensland in conjunction with a team of researchers led by Dr. Sarah Casey at the University of the Sunshine Coast. The team includes Dr. Gail Crimmins, Dr. Saskia de Klerk and Dr. Karen Hands alongside Professor Jackie Hewitt from Griffith University. This podcast series is about building women's capacity, empowerment, strategic communication, and business leadership skills. This series is eclectic. We interview community and business leaders, entrepreneurs, academics, communication and media experts, an empowerment and confidence leader, and CEOs, the agitators and the advocates. Our hope is that this series might act as an inspiration and information toolkit for others. You can find more information about our project at www.realruralwomensleadership.com. All episodes contain show notes about the guests with links to their stories. So settle in and enjoy the series as together we chat with these remarkable women. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Real Rural Women's Leadership podcast. Try saying that fast. We're joined today by academic and journalist Margaret Simons. Margaret comes to us with an extensive background in journalism and also having taught journalism students and led research projects in journalism. So welcome, Margaret. Thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Margaret, can we start with a bit of your background? Where did you start in journalism and what drove you and what inspired you to become a journalist? Sure. Well, my first job in journalism, apart from working on student newspapers at university, was in a little paper in the Riverland of South Australia. It was called the River News, served the town of Wakery, which was, uh, Wakery's got about 2,000 people. It was a weekly newspaper and just about everybody in town bought the newspaper. So it had a pretty important place. And I started there just doing work experience, really, over the summer holidays and then ended up working there, well, before I'd actually graduated from university and, you know, loved it, basically. Did everything from reporting the swimming carnival to council meetings and police news and so on. Just found the whole thing completely fascinating and interesting and loved being part of the community. And it was on the basis largely of the portfolio of articles that I assembled from that experience that I got a cadetship at The Age when I applied. So I joined The Age in January 1982, a long while ago, 40 years ago, hard to believe. And I was at the age for just under 10 years and then went freelance for a while because I wanted to write a novel, which I did. Then I worked briefly for The Australian for about two years as a feature writer and then went freelancer again. And I've been a freelancer ever since, really, (laughs) except for a, a period in academia. But I was freelancing through that as well. So, so what was the driving force that really got you interested in journalism? I know you just said that you really loved what you were doing, but was there something that really underpinned you and your desire to be a journalist? Well, not at first. I think writing was always part of my life. I can't remember a time when I haven't written, but I was pretty unsure what I wanted to be and do through most of my childhood and adolescence. I mean, you know, the usual range of things, wanted to be a ballet dancer and a vet and various other things. But when I started university, I was pretty unsure as to what I wanted to do for a career. And it was actually my mother who observed 
that journalism might suit me. And speaking to her later, she said it was a combination of the fact that I like writing, but also she'd observed a few times when I was involved in various community activities and so on that I had no trouble going up and talking to people, uh, something which she always found a little bit challenging. And she was impressed by the fact that, you know, I liked going up and talking to people and asking them questions. You know, I've always enjoyed having the licence to be nosy, basically. And quite rightly, she said, well, what about journalism? And when I graduated from, you know, when I was close to graduating from university, I really wasn't convinced, but I didn't have any better ideas. <laughs> um, I had got some experience working for ONDI, which is the University of Adelaide student newspaper, and I had enjoyed that. But it was really that, you know, it was only a few months at the River News in Wakery and just how much I absolutely adored the job that uh, got me started. And then I was fortunate in being a cadet at the age during what we now regard as the golden era of that newspaper and had some great mentors there. It's really interesting how that story about falling into journalism is common to a lot of people that I've spoken to over the years and certainly it was common to me as well. A job came up and I took the job and, as you did, discovered that it was a great job and loved it a lot. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing that it might not initially be a calling but perhaps it becomes a calling did you find yeah. that? Yes, I think that's right. You know, by the time I'd been at the age a year, I would say that I had a sense of vocation, which has never really left me. And, you know, that can be both a blessing and a curse, having a vocation. But I didn't, I didn't grow up with that sense. I think, you know, as a teenager, I probably had very little idea of what journalism was all about, really. But once I was in it, I loved it. So what kinds of challenges have you faced in your journey as a journalist? What are some of the major challenges that you've faced and how have you overcome them? Well, I think I've had a blessed career in lots of ways, so I don't know that I'd want to emphasise the challenges. I mean, every single story is a challenge and these days, you know, I'm a freelancer, I'm often writing sort of longer feature-type-based pieces People don't believe this, given I've been doing this stuff for 40 years, people think I must know how to do it now. But I think every time you start to write a challenging piece, it's, you know, you doubt your ability to do it. And I still go through all those dark nights of the soul in just about every long piece that I do. So that's a challenge. I've never found a way of doing it that avoids that. I have got better at dealing with it over time you know it helps to know that you've done it many times before and it's usually turned out all right but the feelings of you know angst and fear and self-doubt don't go away you choose this for your life if you're a writer I think what is it about you any characteristics or something particular about you that you think has contributed to your professional success and achievements well, probably best for others to comment on that, but I think I am very nosy, or a nicer way of putting it would be to say that I'm very curious. You know, I, I'm just curious about all sorts of things. You know, I'm the sort of person who goes to a party and ends up in the corner talking for hours to somebody because, you know, they're an engineer in something or the other and, you know, I know nothing about it and <laughs> I just want to know. So I'm nosy. That's one thing. I, I am a writer. I think... You know, if I if you had to say what I sort of came to the profession with, I would say 
it was knowing that I was a writer. The writing came first. That was always there. And while there's a lot more to journalism than writing, you know, in terms of the time you spend on the job, you spend far more time doing research than writing. That helps. Writing's important to the job, being able to communicate clearly, being able to take people inside a story. So that helps. What else? It's really the only thing I do really well other than cooking. I'm quite a good cook and I'm a sort of indifferent gardener. So, you know, the other thing that's probably made me stick at it is that it's basically the only thing I can do. So do you consider yourself a storyteller? Yes, that's one of the things that's involved, yes. Mm. Have there been any particular people who have supported you over the years and helped you to achieve the success that you have? Well, lots of people, really. I mentioned that, you know, in the when I joined the age, I had some great mentors. And that was a time when there were a lot of, you know, terrific writers. I'm not saying there aren't some good writers at the age now, but we all know that the profession has suffered enormously from cutbacks and the collapse of the business model. But, you know, I worked with people like Robert Haupt, the late Robert Haupt, who was a beautiful writer and a great editor. Rosemary West, who was then the editor of Accent, which uh, was the woman's page at the time, and who took that from being a sort of conventional 1950s, 60s women's page into being a forum for feminist ideas. She was influential on me. Paul Chadwick, who came to journalism with a great passion for the mission and explored the use of freedom of information legislation. So those are, you know, some of the people that I had direct contact with. But I was also perhaps a bit later in my career inspired by some of the American great writers, people like Joan Didion and Janet Malcolm, who I discovered quite late. You know, it was the mid-1990s and Amanda Lowry, the, who was a wonderful novelist but also a great essay, essayist, and she introduced me to those American writers at a time when I was feeling fairly fed up with journalism and disillusioned with it. I'd written two novels and mentally I was thinking, well, journalism is going to be how I earn my living, but it's really about fiction now. And she encouraged me to read those writers and it just opened my eyes to the fact that it was possible to do journalism in a much more creative and thematic way. So they were very influential on me too. Can we now turn to talk about your involvement in the new venture, PS Media? Can you tell us what PS Media is about, why it was established and what your role is in it? Sure. Yeah, well, I'm one of four directors of PS Media and I'm also, I got a, the grand title of editor-at-large, which means that I'm helping to oversee the editorial side of operations. So PS Media, it stands for Paradigm Shift Media, which is a signal to what it's about. We want to try doing journalism in a different way. So it's focused very much on local journalism with the idea that journalism at a local level can be collaborative and co-owned with the community. And that it's still possible to do, you know, good, hard-hitting journalism that looks at difficult issues and problems, but as an act of collaboration with communities. So I think many communities, and I'm thinking particularly perhaps on the urban fringe of our communities, when a journalist comes to town, it's problems. It's a problem for the community. Journalists are often seen as the enemy. I'm thinking in particular about the huge amount of attention some media outlets a couple of years ago were giving to so-called African gangs on the urban fringe of Melbourne. Odd how those African gangs have disappeared now. They were never really there. It was a complete beat-up. 
But journalists suddenly descended on, you know, communities like Dandenong or Tarnet on the urban fringe, and they were definitely the enemy. And that is, for someone with a sense of vocation, like myself, who believes in the importance of journalism, you know, that's distressing. Uh, it's not how it should be. Also, we I referred earlier to the way in which the business model that supports most journalism has collapsed. That has been particularly acute at local level, in regions, certainly, in rural and regional areas, but just as much or even more so in so whereas once you would have had at least one reporter, possibly two, reporting your local council meeting or turning up to the local magistrate's court, those journalists just aren't there anymore. If the newspaper or outlet has survived at all, it's probably got a single journalist and she or he is probably sitting in an office somewhere in the centre of the city rather than actually in the suburb. Um, and I think that's dangerous because the affairs of the nation and the world, for that matter, play out in local suburban streets and parks and schools and hospitals. And I've always thought that a far more interesting and useful way of reporting politics would be to do it from the ground up. So to start with what's happening in the school or the hospital and maybe you end up, you know, in Canberra or in Spring Street asking questions as a minister, but to start at the, to start at the bottom, I think that's a more promising way of helping people to see how and why politics might matter to them. And so I wanted to explore journalism, and here I've been influenced by uh, people like Jay Rosen, for example, the um, American journalism academic, that could be part of helping people to understand the problems that they're facing and, you know, can be solutions-focused as well without dodging the tough stuff. So that was the origins of my interest. During my time in academia, I did a fair bit of research in local journalism specifically, and that grew my interest. And then a few people who I've known for a while, Simon Creerer, who is my co-director and CEO of PS Media, he was the editor of BuzzFeed in Australia when it was operating. He did a whole heap of very creative and interesting things at BuzzFeed. You know, BuzzFeed is largely about light entertainment, but Simon hired the first dedicated Indigenous reporter in Australia amazing thing and you know did some really high quality journalism out of Canberra and of course because BuzzFeed is web-based you know was very innovative in terms of getting community engagement and then our other directors are Karen Marlab who is the founder of Pro Bono which is a web-based media outlet serving the charitable and not-for-profit community. Um, she has got a long-standing commitment to community. And then our last director is Rob Wise, who is really our technical person. And he has for some years been managing a platform which manages volunteering for communities in a very sort of innovative way. So we bring a mix of background and talent. And right through COVID, before COVID, we were working on raising money for PS Media, a combination of investors and philanthropic support. And we are shortly to launch our first three pilot ventures, which will be in three communities, Logan City in Queensland, Brimbank and Port Phillip in Melbourne. So can we talk a little bit about those sites and why they were chosen? Mm, sure. What is special about these places? Well, we could have launched, you know, given unlimited funds, we could launch um, in so many places. I mean... Just about everywhere we go and talk about this venture sees a potential for PS Media 
in its region. I could talk for hours about the decision-making process, but I think probably the simplest way to put it is it comes down to a mixture of our funding, the areas where we think we can most usefully pilot and learn lessons. Obviously, we'll have lessons to learn. We've got a fair few ideas, but we'll, you know, the whole idea is that we learn from the communities. And so we want to prove our model, prove that it is possible to do reporting a bit differently. And also, in order for PS Media to advance and hopefully eventually become nationwide, we need to prove that there is a desire in the community to co-own and fund this sort of venture. So it's a new business model. Is the aim to go into these communities and find problems? For example, I live in Logan Shire and there are some issues uh, that traditional news media frequently report on, whether mm. they're actually real or blown up is the subject for, I guess, a whole other podcast. But if there are issues around young people, there are issues mm. around crime, there are issues around drug taking and dealing, for example. Mm. Uh, are these the kinds of issues that you'll be going in to investigate? And if they are actually in existence, looking at bringing experts in to develop some solutions from the ground up. Is that the approach? That will be the approach. I mean, Logan would be an example of what I talked about earlier, I think, which is when a journalist comes to town, it's nearly always bad news for the community, just the fact that the journalist is there. And communities very rarely feel properly represented or depicted in that sort of reporting. It doesn't necessarily mean the reporter's getting it wrong, but they are reporting it from the point of view of, oh, dear, you know, there's this terrible problem, bad people, and then they go back to their city offices and leave the community to deal with the fallout from that. So, yes, we will certainly be reporting on issues, but they will be the issues that we find the community is talking about and where the community wants to work through them and find answers. And when, when I say find answers, I'm not suggesting that that's always simple and sometimes there aren't easy answers. But we would, taking a leaf out of the public journalism movement in the States, you know, we might hold a community forum possibly to discuss an issue. And yes, that might include experts, but also residents, local government people. We would report on that and, you know, hope to be seen as part of the community as it wrestles with issues and problems. But of course, not everything is problems. You know, we would also be reporting on the strengths of the community. You know, Logan, for example, has a really strong Pacific Island community. Um, now, that community has uh, an incredibly complex history. You know, some of them first came as part of effectively slave labour to work on sugar plantations and cotton plantations. It's part of Australia's history, which we find very difficult to look at, I think, and, and to consider. But, you know, they've survived, they've prospered, they've got an incredibly rich culture you know, a lot of fascinating people are part of that community. That's something which we'd want to engage with and depict, you know, not just as a problem, but as an interesting community and something from which the rest of us could probably learn. Absolutely. Issues around mm. family value and cultural mm. tra traditions, they are really important. Yeah. Mm. You're hiring. You're hiring, Jim. You're hiring. Yes, we're hiring. We're, we're in the middle of our hiring process at the moment. We have advertisements on LinkedIn and Seek, if people want to go looking for them, for reporters and copy editors. So we'll be hiring three reporters initially and a copy editor for our three-month pilot. And obviously we hope to both extend and expand in the wake of that pilot. If the pilot's successful and given the people involved, I have no doubt that there will be, you know, degrees of success in the pilot 
uh, would you be looking to expand to uh, more regional, rural and maybe even remote areas in Australia? Going Absolutely. Back, oh, that's great. So going back to your point about the shrinking news environment and these are the areas that have been significantly affected by the shrinking news environment along with the communities that you're also talking about. Some people would refer to them as the badlands, not my word, but certainly the words of some people who have researched those areas. They're definitely not the badlands, but we're looking at also, as you are, at suburbs and mm. the absence of local information and news, which is so important to people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah, no, well, you know, we would very much like to, I mean, Logan, of course, has a large rural area as well. It's still looking at this just the other day. I think some something like, don't hold me to the figure, but it's something like 80% of the land in Logan is still agricultural. So, you know, it does have agricultural communities. But yes, it's, you know, the population is basically living on the edge of a major city. But no, we definitely want to expand to regional areas and to other communities that will have us. You know, we need local support in order for it to work. You know, so some of the communities which I researched during my time as an academic, take Moree, for example, which is pretty remote, still has a local newspaper, but the actual reporting talent at that newspaper has been denuded over the years and still does a good job of reporting the local community. But, you know, we think it should be possible to do a more sort of contextualised way and through that give communities like that a voice. Um, you know, another area that I've written about a lot myself is uh, water politics and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And many of the communities throughout the Murray-Darling Basin feel that they don't really have a voice, they're not really listened to. The whole thing has been left to the National Party, which, you know, hasn't necessarily handled all those areas particularly well. There's certainly lost some seats in the New South Wales state elections as a result, partly as a result of anger over water politics and most people in the city don't understand those issues at all. So one of the things you can do through a web-based publication is both speak to and serve the local community but also give that community a voice in national affairs. That's so important, bringing these issues to the attention of city folk, city dwellers who may not really understand the political intrigues that go on around those issues and how they affect local people. Exactly. And, you know, I think there's, I mean, we have a really severe urban-rural divide in Australia and that sort of cuts across economically in terms of service provision but also culturally. You know, I think many city people just don't understand country people and think, you know, Clancy is still riding over the overflow and all that sort of thing. Whereas, in fact, you know, rural Australia has been through more rapid change in the last couple of decades than the cities have. Changes to the way the agricultural products are marketed, you know, end of the wheat board and those sorts of arrangements, water, which I've already mentioned, climate change, obviously, and shrinking of communities due to mechanisation of agriculture. You know, so many issues, and they've all happened incredibly quickly. And at the same time, the farming community has changed. The women, of course, have always been there, but they used to be referred to as farmers' wives, whereas they were, you know, they're farmers, any other farmer. These days, we've got women leading Australia's main agricultural um, organisations. That's a change. Most farmers these days are tertiary educated, maybe in agricultural courses rather than the sort of wanky Bachelor of Arts that I did, but, you know, they're, they're well-educated, they have a high level of skill, they know their areas intimately, and they are concerned about politics, not necessarily, you know, for the sake of politics, 
but because they're concerned about things like land and water management. And, of course, climate change represents an enormous economic, social and environmental change. Responding to climate change is going to be huge. And it's really important that those communities have a voice through that process because we'll all be affected, but they'll be affected first and most. The the stereotypes abound of the regional, rural and remote character and just talking to some other people for this podcast series, the diversity in regional, rural and remote Australia uh, is very much underplayed in Mm. traditional news media. So how you've talked a bit about the communities, the Pacific Island communities in Logan, for example. So how important it is, is it that you fit that you think and feel that rural, regional and remote news sites reflect that diversity? Well, very important because if you're not doing that, you're not serving your community. And this is something, you know, generally speaking, I think Australian media have a long way to go on this. If you walk into most newsrooms, uh, most people look like me, well, perhaps younger, but, um, but white, middle class, which is my background. And if you walk out into the street outside the newsroom, looks quite different. That's certainly the case in the cities, certainly the case on the edge of the cities, which I think is an area of particular challenge. That's where Australia is being built, basically. It's where it's under construction, where the kids are growing up, where families are making their homes. But, you know, even I was in Shepparton a few weeks ago now, and, you know, that's an incredibly multicultural community. It's an important centre for traditional owners, Indigenous people, but you've also got a long history of migrant workers coming to work in the fruit canning industry and that sort of thing there. And you don't see that represented in reporting of the region, really. I think that, you know, it's a general criticism that can be made at the Australian media that we are blind sometimes to multiculturalism and newsrooms don't resemble the community which they claim to serve. Now, we can't change the world overnight, but it's certainly a mistake we'd be trying not to replicate. Certainly the research supports what you're saying there Mm. about the lack of diversity and voices in news content and also newsroom staff makeup. Mm. Let's fast forward five years, Margaret. (laughs) We're going into the future. Yes. (laughs) What would you like to see PS Media as? And what do you think and what do you think your colleagues would like to see PS Media look like? Well I think we'd like to be operating in dozens of communities across Australia and maybe even looking internationally. Who knows that this is super ambitious here. We'd like to be employing dozens of journalists. We'd like to be a voice in state and federal politics and possibly employing, you know, journalists to report federal politics, for example, but for the communities, you know, reporting on issues which arise from the communities. And to be a successful force in Australian media, having proved that the community, a community collaborative co-owned model can work and is sustainable. Let's talk about some issues around gender, and I know we've just talked about the lack of diversity, but I Mm. want to talk about how being a woman has played, and I guess I should add whether, how and whether being a woman has played a role in your career and Mm. also in your style of journalism. Yeah, well, inevitably the answer is yes, obviously, it has played a role. I think I haven't always been as aware of that of, you know, the way gender affected my journalism and affected me in particular. I haven't been as aware of that as I possibly am now. You know, one of my regrets 
about my early time in journalism is that I don't think I was a sufficiently self-conscious feminist. I mean, I certainly would have called myself a feminist. I've always called myself a feminist. But, you know, I look back to those early years in the age, for example, and the levels of sort of low-level and sometimes worse sexual harassment that took place. And we largely put up with it and got on with it. There were a couple of cases. I was involved in the union for a while and I was the union rep for my workplace. And there were a couple of more serious cases I dealt with as a union rep where women had been placed in real danger. And the company, generally speaking, dealt with it pretty badly. And that opened my eyes to some extent as to the problem. But we just put up with a lot of stuff that young women these days would not put up with. And good on them. And I regret in some ways of not seeing, well, I'm proud of the work I did to support individual women. I think there were systemic issues there, which, you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago, we were either blind to or didn't think we could change. And I regret that. I wish I'd been a little bit more aware around that. Having said that, you know, these were the year, this was the era in which the newsroom was wreathed in cigarette smoke. And there was a the beginning of a campaign to stop smoking in the workplace. And most people thought that was impossible too. I remember it well when I started mm. as a journalist walking up the stairs, opening the newsroom door and the blue haze and the Playboy centrefolds on yes. the wall. Above Absolutely. The <laughs> well, you know, there was the the um photographic department um at the age when I joined had no women in it. And then there were two women who worked there during my period at the age, both of them in different ways, had a terrible time, you know, really quite serious sexual harassment, just awful. And they both left, which was, you know, they were both incredibly talented people, so that was a great shame. I remember the first female sub-editor at the age, Karen Kazane, and, you know, the, the challenges she had. And I referred earlier to Accent, which was the ages women's page and the way in which that was transformed really into a page that was dealing with women's issues, you know, women's political issues and feminist issues and the challenges that were faced in doing that. And, you know, when they abolished Accent, it was with the promise that these issues would now be covered in the main part of the newspaper. Well, of course, that promise was never fulfilled. So, you know, it's it's all pervasive. I haven't always been as conscious of it. Um, you know, second wave feminists in the 70s and 80s used to go to consciousness-raising groups. I think I should probably should have gone to a few because uh, my, my consciousness and awareness of the gendered nature of media has grown over time. It's better now. There is no doubt at all that it is better, but we've still got a long way to go. And certainly when I look back to some of the things, you know, some of the things that were just said in the average day, which these days would be completely unacceptable. But that kind of unthinking sexism was the water in which we swam and we just kept swimming. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about leadership? Because you have had leadership roles over the years, both in journalism but also when you made that transfer over to academia. And I really want to ask you what, do you bring to leadership and how do you act lead and, and act leadership in your various roles? Good Lord. Well, again, it's a question I feel others who've dealt with me should probably answer rather than trying to answer for myself. Yes. Well, again, it's something I've learned on the run, really. I've, I'm never really 
studied leadership in any formal sense. I think the university sent me on a two-day leadership course once, but that was largely about how to deal with the bureaucracy. I think it's very important not to be hypocritical, to, to walk the talk. There's a constant balance to be struck between, you know, pragmatism, what can be achieved in any organisation or any situation, and, you know, what you might like to do. If there were no limits, there's always limits. Sometimes the limit is simply your own energy and time. You know, you can't be everywhere and do everything at every time. I think it's really important to recognise the strengths of a team and to spend a bit of time challenging your own preconceptions around that. Sometimes it's hard to see people who are good at things that you're not good at. You know, you might underrate that skill or or just fail to see it. And I think that's important to put the effort into seeing the team's strengths and to work with the team you've got. You know, you're never going to have the perfect team that you would dream up. And even if you did, you'd probably find you'd been wrong about that. You actually needed something you hadn't foreseen. So, you know, always to recognise the strengths of the team. What else? I think, you know, you need a bit of idealism, but you need to mix that with a bit of pragmatism. I can't really think of anything else. (laughs) And as I say, you'd probably be better off talking to people who I have been involved with in the workplace. Sometimes it is hard to reflect on these kinds of things because uh, you just get on and do, do, don't you? Yeah, and, you you know, I haven't really... I don't see myself as having had a career. I mean, clearly I have in a sense. I'm not trying to be silly about it. But, you know, I've just done things, you know, and then there's the next thing and the next thing. You know, I I didn't fall into journalism, really. I did explore journalism, but without a strong conviction at first. And I did fall into academia. I spent 10 years in academia and I kind of never really meant that to happen. But, you know, as I say, I've just done things. I do something and then there's the next thing and the next thing. The thing that led me into academia was a job that I got at Crikey when um, taking a job at Crikey was, you know, well, it was a a retainer, I was a freelancer, to be their media writer. And it was right at the period when journalism was changing fundamentally, you know, in the early days of the World Wide Web. And so I ended up reporting on all those changes and, you know, reflecting as a journalist on what they meant and where they would take us. And that sort of more reflective writing led to me being picked up by academia initially on a short-term contract and and then there was, you know, a degree to design and a research project to do and before you know it, I'm an associate professor. (laughs) You know, none of that was planned. (laughs) Looks good in retrospect. I could construct some great story about how I decided to do it in retrospect. It wasn't the way it worked. (laughs) And 10 years passes in the blink of an eye. uh, Exactly. Seemingly. Exactly. If we were driving a traditional American cruiser, left-hand drive down the road right now, Margaret, (laughs) uh, we'd we'd be about to change gears. So I probably should have asked you this question earlier. What I would like to ask you, we're changing down a gear a bit and slowing down a bit now, is for the people in the areas where PS Media is going to be established, but more broadly for people in regional, rural and remote areas, what is your advice to them about engaging with journalists? How should they Mm. go about this? Well, I realise this might be um, difficult, but I would appeal to those people to try and overlook the shortcomings in the way the job is currently often done. Some of those shortcomings are the sort of thing I've talked about, you know, the journalist arriving as this sort of hostile force, and some of it is just 
you know, lack of resources, inexperience, very junior young people who usually only come and stay for a year before going back to the city. So I would appeal to communities to try and overlook that and help us to think through how it can be done as a collaborative act. Doesn't mean you're always going to like the stories or agree with points of view that are represented. But, you know, at the moment, if you live in, you know, an outer suburb or a country town, it's easier to find out what Joe Biden did last night than why there was a column of smoke on the horizon or why the pothole in the road hasn't been fixed or why there's so many portables at the local school. We want to fix that. And if we don't have that sort of knowledge, and it's journalists who can provide that kind of knowledge when they're doing their job well, then we don't really know ourselves as a nation. And that makes us hard to govern, makes impossible for democracy to work, and we end up, I think, in quite a dangerous and, and impoverished place as a country. So I would you know, appeal to local communities to join with us in thinking through how can this be done well and to help us learn. You know, we bring skills, we bring certain experiences, but we need to learn from the communities about how we can do this with all the traditional journalistic virtues of, you know, impartiality and factual accuracy and so on, but better, reconceive it, make a paradigm shift. I love that. I thought mm. PS Media standard uh, stood for, I thought PS Media stood for public service media. <laughs> Well, it's got, we've got a few connotations. I mean, there's also PS in the sense of the thing you put on the end of a piece of correspondence, right? And, you know, we're, we're resonating across all of those quite consciously, but we are after a paradigm shift in the conception of journalism. So now I'm coming to the end of our journey, but what I would like to do is just get your thoughts for journalism students in particular about the future of the industry and get you to give them some general advice as well. Yeah. So rapid change will continue. I realise now that the journalism students who are currently studying don't remember a time before the World Wide Web. Makes me feel very old, of course. Don't remember a time before social media, for example. And that has already changed journalism enormously and presented journalism with huge challenges. And those changes and challenges are going to continue. And I don't think Young people need to be told that. I think they know that instinctively, by and large. But there are also some traditional virtues which really matter. You know, we've been through periods where people thought people wanted clickbait. Well, people read clickbait, but they don't pay for it. They won't pay a subscription for it. Where people think everybody wants opinion. Well, the most important thing, I mean, people have opinions. Journalists have opinions. Academics have opinions. Everybody has opinions, but that's not the most important thing about a journalist. The most important thing about a journalist is their ability to find things out, to find out facts, so that other people can have opinions on them. So, you know, those traditional virtues remain the most important thing about journalists. What we have to find is a way of making the business model sustainable at a time when the advertising-based business model, which paid my salary for most of my career, has virtually collapsed. There's a little bit more money around at the moment, thanks to the News Media Bargaining Code. Many media companies have received money from Facebook and Google. Those contracts run, I gather, from between three to five years. They're all confidential, so I'm only going on gossip. And there's a question about what happens after that, the three to five years, and when they're renegotiated. But it does give us a little bit of a breathing space right now. There are actually quite a lot of jobs around for journalists at the moment, and it's largely thanks to that funding. 
So we need to use that space to not just keep on doing more of the same, but to actually think about reconceiving the profession. And the young people who are studying today or who are in their first job will be doing that. You know, I'm in my 60s. I'm only around for a limited period more, I hope, with PS Media to establish something which will outlast me. But it's the young people who will actually do this, and I think they need to step up and take that on with, as I say, that balance of idealism and pragmatism. Margaret, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, that's been pretty, pretty comprehensive, really. I mean, I'm probably sounding, you know, when I'm reflecting on my career and my characteristics, I sort of think, God, I don't know. As I say, I've just done the things, you know, and then the next thing and the next thing has presented itself. So, you know, if I had the time again, I might do something different. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Rural Women's Leadership podcast series. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd be delighted if you would take a couple of minutes to rate and review our podcast on your chosen listening platform. If you'd like to learn more about this series or get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so via our website at www.realruralwomensleadership.com, where you'll also find links to our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram accounts. Thanks again for listening.